All right, well, good morning, Mercy House. How are we? Pretty good. Awesome. I'm Pastor Tommy. I'm really grateful for this opportunity to bring you God's Word from the book of Nehemiah this morning. Um, This is week eight in our series, and we're just about to hit the halfway point of the book. And if you recall from the beginning when we first started this book, I gave you this simple little graphic to help you understand and kind of see the overarching narrative and the major themes uh, of this 13-chapter book. And the book itself is, it can be broken down into six major movements, as you see at the top of the screen there. So you've got the early uh, planning stage, as Nehemiah hears the great distress of the people whose city of Jerusalem lies in ruins. Um, and then he prayerfully seeks God for months and, and, and tries to figure out what it's going to look like for him to be able to help his brothers and his sisters. And then you've got the rebuilding Nehemiah arrives on the scene in Jerusalem. He calls a team together. He mobilizes a ragtag, underqualified crew of very diverse Jews and leads them toward this vision of rebuilding God's beloved city and removing the reproach and the shame of the nations around them. And then we moved into the opposition, opposition to this rebuilding, which we've been covering these past couple of weeks. Opposition from the outside of the walls who, with people who are threatening their work and their lives. Opposition from inside with doubt and faithlessness of God's people. Opposition near side coming from all the family and friends who didn't come help and who are now exhorting them to just quit and pack it up. And then we saw even more opposition in the form of greed. It starts to tear apart the unity within God's family as people are selfishly taking advantage of one another and enslaving one another for financial gain. That's last week in chapter 5. And this week in chapter 6, we're going to see even more opposition. But it gets deeply personal. And so what's tested in chapters 4 and 5 are Nehemiah's leadership and his administrative gifts under challenges of opposition to the community as a whole, from both outside and inside. But now in chapter 6, he's going to be facing a flurry of personal attacks that are going to be testing his personal resolve. It will test his discernment. It will test his faith. Before we dive into chapter 6, pray with me once again. God, we thank you for another morning where we can use the lungs that you gave us to breathe the air that you provide for us, which fuels our hearts that you formed in us to enable our minds, which you have constructed in our heads to read your words, which you have graciously and miraculously written down for us. God, you hold all things together. You sustain us from life to death and again to life eternal. God, your purposes cannot be thwarted. Your will cannot be bent. Your protection is total. Your goodness is inescapable. Your grace is sufficient for us. You will bring all things to completion. Help us this morning to hear from you through your word. God, and may the truth of your word be written on the eternal tablets of our hearts. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Starting in verse 1. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come and let us meet together at Hakafirim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they said to me four times, sent to me four times in this way. And I answered them in the same manner. 
So the walls have been connected together, all two and a half miles of them. There is no breach, no major gaps in that wall. And what this means is that the work of the oppressors who want this project to fail has just gotten a lot harder. See, before the walls were completed, the people were completely vulnerable. And that's because a wall is only as effective uh, as the completion of the wall. Otherwise, it's just a nice rocky lawn ornament in their yard. Because if there's a breach anywhere in the wall, there's no legitimate protection of the people on the inside. They could just walk down a few feet and go through the unfinished part. So trying to sabotage a project like this while the walls were still rubble was relatively easy. And that's why Tobiah and Sambalat, they resorted to threats of violence. They tried to sow uh, seeds of doubt from within. And that's why they're heckling them as they work. They're just trying to chip away at their morale and their strength of heart. But once the walls are completed, the only way to sabotage a city would be to besiege it, to mount a physical attack, to try to cause a breach in the wall where a force could invade, kill, and destroy the city. Now, as the finish line approaches, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, they know that their window for a relatively easy destruction of this city, it's, it's closing rapidly. And so you see in this chapter uh, several final attempts to stop this rebuilding of Jerusalem. And if you can't stop the people because they're so well trained up, because they're so encouraged, because they're so well led, then you go for the head of the operation, Nehemiah himself. And here are their tactics. In verses 1 through 4, you see an attempt to kidnap Nehemiah. In verses 5 through 9, you see an attempt to malign and slander Nehemiah. In verses 10 through 14, you see an attempt to intimidate and disqualify Nehemiah. And then in 17 through 19, you see attempts to undermine Nehemiah. We're going to walk through all of these this morning. So first up, kidnapping. Sambalot, Tobiah, and Geshem. Let's just call them the bad guys this morning because that's how Nehemiah categorizes them in verse 1. Sambalot and Tobiah and Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies. So he calls them what they are. They're not just confused or they might have a few different opinions. They're not just wayward sheep. Like They are wolves who are seeking their own good and they're willing to devour anyone that gets between them and what they want. They're enemies of God and his people. They're the bad guys. And these bad guys, they send a messenger to Nehemiah saying, Hey, why don't you come down to Hecathirim in the plain of Ono and let's have a little chat. We just want to talk with you. Let's just talk it out. Nehemiah exercises some discernment. He uses some wisdom. He knows that when someone or something is an enemy of God, there's nothing to talk about. Only harm can come with meeting with them, and Nehemiah knows it. You see that at the end of verse 2. But they intended to do me harm. So what does he do? Look at verse 3. And I sent messengers to him, saying, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? In other words, I'm busy. I don't have time for you. Nehemiah recognizes that this is a distraction. It's meant to pull him away from the work that God has called him to do. He calls it a great work. A distraction he rightly sees is meant to harm him. And he says, why should I stop what I'm doing to have a conversation with you? The Mercy House, this is a response that as Christians we need to have at the ready. And while we may not have these particular bad guys in our lives trying to physically kidnap us, we do have an enemy that is going to do anything he can to tempt us with things to distract us from God, that divert our attention away from what God has called us to do, to pull our hearts away from the God who loves us. 
And what we ought to do, instead of entertaining the temptation, instead of going to just check it out, instead of giving any headspace or any heart space, we ought to respond like Nehemiah. I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. You see a similar sentiment in James chapter 4, verse 7, where James says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And so Nehemiah is exercising some godly discernment, some holy resistance here. He's doing James 4, 7. He's submitting to God. He's obediently following through with the work that he's called to do. And he's recognizing that the bad guys are trying to just distract him. And so in his submission and obedience to God, he's resisting the urge to give in to this distraction. Not just once. Look at verse 4. And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. So this kidnapping plot is thwarted because Nehemiah has a sober mind. He's able to see through their plot, while at the same time, he's understanding the importance of what God has called him to do, that great work. Mercy us, this is how we ought to walk as well. The reality is, is that we have an enemy, and his voice takes the shape and form of other people, maybe of the media that we consume, maybe even our own voices that articulate our fleshy, sinful desires. And this voice, often like the bad guys here in chapter 6, are designed to draw us out into the open, to pull us away from the safety of our community, of God's people, who can speak wisdom and life into us, who can help warn us and who can fight for us to drag us to a place where we're completely vulnerable. The battle is real, Mercy House, and Nehemiah's experience, it foreshadows an even more cunning enemy that we have who is actively seeking to devour us. Now, there's an easy solution. You don't give the enemy an inch. You don't entertain any sinful temptations. The answer is to not compromise. To, do, to, 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 to not leave the work and the life that God has called us to, but like James 4, 7 says, to submit ourselves to God, to resist the devil, to not go down there, to not uh, even consider going into where we're being called into, to take every thought captive, to, to not click on that link, to not give in. Like Even if Satan is beckoning you like Nehemiah continually is beckoned, we need to resist two times, three times, four times, 40 times, and he will flee. Satan will flee. Unfortunately for Nehemiah, the enemy doesn't flee quite yet. These bad guys see that their method of approach isn't working, and so they switch tactics a little bit. Look at verse 5. In the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are, re you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So come now and let us take counsel together. Then I said to him, I sent to him saying, no such thing as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, oh God, strengthen my hands. 
Sanballat takes a different approach. Instead of delivering a letter directly to Nehemiah, he sends an open letter. Now, the significance of this is that anyone who the messenger bumped into would be able to read the contents of that letter. It's the difference between someone sending you a DM as opposed to everyone seeing it posted on their wall. And if you have no idea what that means, it's, it's kind of like if someone were to email you directly as opposed to like email you and CCing everyone in your address book and everyone in their address book. If you still don't know what I'm talking about, it's, they're sending an open letter and anyone can read it. And sure, you might think transparency is good. Like, let's put it out in the light. Why not? But the contents of that letter, that open letter, maligns and slanders Nehemiah. What's being said in this open letter is this. Hey, Nehemiah, we know that you want to rebel against the king of Persia. We know why you're building this wall. And we, we know that it's because you want to be king yourself. We know that you've already set up prophets to justify your actions and, and persuade your people. And since this is all clear to everyone, the king's about to know anyways, let's just meet up and talk. The problem with this is that none of it is true. These are insidious lies that are designed by the bad guys to manipulate others into thinking that Nehemiah had secret, dishonorable intentions, that his motives for rebuilding Jerusalem were corrupt, that he, in fact, has been trying to position himself to be the new ruling king. So if these things are believed, this would severely discredit the actions of Nehemiah and put into serious doubt his integrity as a leader and then foil the whole vision of rebuilding in the community of God's people. Now think for a minute, aside from the practical, how painful and hurtful this attack would have been on Nehemiah. Imagine for yourself devoting your resources, and your time pouring yourself out, investing your whole heart with tears and sweat and blood for the good of somebody. And then people accuse you of doing all that for selfish gain. That your caring for someone was just a strategic political move. That your tears were fake. They were calculated. That everything that you've done to sacrifice and love someone has been just an elaborate act of manipulation. We need to be careful with our words, Mercy House. Be careful of the assumptions and the accusations that we make. Here, Sanballat is purposefully trying to wreak havoc on Nehemiah. But this can also happen inadvertently without a malicious intent. Now, this is a low blow to Nehemiah to be accused of being manipulative and abusive. And it's meant to drive Nehemiah into defensive action. That he'd be so startled and nervous of these accusations and that people might actually even think this about him and that he'd have no choice but to go out out of fear and to meet these bad guys to try to clear the air a little bit. But look at what he does in verse 8. Then I sent to him saying, no such things as you say have been done for you are inventing them out of your mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, oh God, strengthen my hands. Nehemiah has a clear conscience before the Lord, and that is enough. The power of sinful, slanderous, false accusations is lost when we remember that God sees us and he knows us. 
When we know the truth of the gospel and who we are in Christ, then the lies of the enemy have no power over us. So the bad guys in this passage, they reveal an age-old tactic of Satan. He'll try to draw us out with cunning, and he'll try to entice us to leave what we believe. And when that doesn't work, he'll spread some seeds of doubt, make us question our own motives. He's the original gaslighter. He will do everything he can to manipulate us, to question our own judgment and our understanding of the world around us. And that's what they're doing to Nehemiah. They're saying, Nehemiah, are you really trying to help these people? Or do you just have some self-righteous crusade that you're on? Do you actually love these people? Or are you just trying to soften them up a little bit so they bow a little bit easier to you as king? Do you actually care about God's standards of holiness? Or do you just get off on being angry and just yelling at people all the time? Do you even care? Or is this all about you, Nehemiah? See, I don't know what accusations and lies Satan might be feeding you. You might hear them from others. They might be masked as your own voice, as doubts about yourself, your identity, and your faith. And either way, whether these lies are from others or ourselves, we need to recognize them as what they are. They are lies from the enemy. We need to not let them have any space in our heads and our hearts, and we need to call them out like Nehemiah does. And what this looks like is putting them in the light. Being in community, spending time with others who love God and who know the gospel and who love us and saying to them, hey, I'm hearing some things about myself, that I'm a broken sinner beyond repair, that I'm a hopeless cause, that God can never heal me, that I'll never amount to anything, that I'm ugly and fat and I'm useless and worthless and not even a Christian, that God doesn't even actually care about me. And as Christians who know the gospel, we expose these lies for what they are. And we say to our brother and sister who's struggling under the weight of accusations and slander from the enemy, that's not true. You're not broken beyond repair because God will reconcile all things to himself, including you. You're not a hopeless cause because God himself will redeem you. You're not unhealable. God is in the business of bringing dead things to life. He's done it over and over and over again. He's not going to stop. You might be ugly and fat by broken, sinful standards of this broken world. But in God's eyes, the only eyes that matter, you are beautiful. You are cherished. You are adored. You are not worthless and useless. You were bought at an infinite price. And you are set, set apart for good works, which God will empower you to do. And if Satan sows seeds of doubt about your own salvation, consider that if you believe in your heart that Jesus is God, that he died to give you forgiveness of your sins, and if you put your faith in that, you are his. You are adopted into God's family. You are his beloved child. And as a jealous and powerful father, our God will not let you go. He will hold you fast and nothing will shake you from his grasp. Not even you. Look again at verses 8 and 9. Then I sent to them saying, no such things as you say have been done. For you are inventing them out of your mind. For they all wanted to frighten us saying their hands will drop from their work. And it, will be, and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen 
my hands. Don't be afraid of the lies of Satan. They do not have power over you. They are inventions. They are fabrications. They're meant to frighten you and to stop you from doing the work that God has called you to do. To pull you away from following our God. And like mosquitoes, you kill them on sight as soon as you hear them buzzing in your ear. Now these lies take a toll on Nehemiah. And we know uh, that this isn't as easy as it sounds because he pleads with the Lord in prayer. Look at the end of verse 9. But now, oh God, strengthen my hands. And so, Lord, I pray for us here that you would expose the lies of Satan in our minds and hearts and that you would free us from them, God, that they would not have power or influence over us. And I pray that you would strengthen the hands which Satan wants to droop, that you would remind us of the truths of the gospel which obliterate the lies of the enemy. Amen. Nehemiah endures a plot to kidnap him. He endures a plot to malign and slander him. And in these next verses, 10 through 4, we see him facing a plot to intimidate and disqualify him. Look at verse 10. Now when I sent into the house... I'm sorry, let me start over. Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him. But he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose, he was hired that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin. And so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God, according to these things that they did. And also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. The bad guys are throwing everything they have at Nehemiah to try to shut down this project before the final gates are put in place. And this plot involves a great deal of conspiracy. So Tobiah and Sambalot, they hire this guy Shemaiah to give a fake prophecy over Nehemiah. This guy invites Nehemiah over to his house under a pretense that he's confined to his house. But then he says, let's go over there, which I think probably is having some alarm bells go off in Nehemiah's head. And then Shemaiah says, people are trying to kill you. Let's go into the temple and shut the doors so you're safe. That seems innocent enough. It seems like maybe even a good idea, but this use of the temple is forbidden. Nehemiah is not a priest. And under God's laws concerning the use of the temple, he's not allowed in there for any reason. Now, this conspiracy has a couple of possible outcomes. If Nehemiah goes in there, he might just straight up die. The, the prohibitions for use of the temple by, by people who are not priests is very clear. In Chronicles chapter 26, when King Uzziah gets so prideful, he moseys into the temple to light some incense, and the priests confront him, and they tell him to leave. He gets really furious, and then out of nowhere, he spontaneously sprouts leprosy on his forehead. He gets it all over his body, and then he spends the rest of his life as a leper living away from God's people. So that's one person that has gone into the temple when they should not have. So perhaps 
Sambalat and Tobiah are hoping something like this happens. Okay? Another outcome could be that if Nehemiah believes this lie that he is in danger, if he is fearful for his life, if he listens and goes into the temple, then that would disqualify him as a leader of God's people. It might even play into this plot from earlier where they're trying to accuse him of trying to be king. Like he's using God's temple as his own little panic room. It's not okay. Nehemiah going into the temple where only priests go, it would be wholly inappropriate for a man of God. It would show distrust in God. It would show disrespect in God's law. And it would be a disqualification in Nehemiah's character as someone who is fit to lead Israel. Nehemiah knows all of this. So look at his response, verse 11. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. Nehemiah is humble here. He doesn't see himself as someone whom the law doesn't apply to. And surely he has some special favor with the Lord, maybe. Surely he deserves to pick and choose what parts to believe and honor in God's law. Surely his life is worth preserving at the cost of being disobedient to God. Like These are some of the lies that will be circulating in his head. But he doesn't believe those lies. He calls them out. And out of a healthy fear and respect of God, he refuses to go into the temple. He refuses to give into their plot to intimidate him. He refuses to be afraid and to let that fear lead him into sin and disqualify him. We need to be aware of those who are wolves in sheep's clothing. Those who might give the impression of holiness or use words that seem reasonable and sensible, but who force us to act in ways that are in opposition to God and his ways. Now, we might hear some of these voices in culture around us, in the media that we consume, from friends or even family, maybe a member of the church, maybe even a leader in the church. They might try to give us counsel. They might try to give us direction. It might appear that they have our best interest at heart. But we still need to exercise discernment. We must take time to judge good from evil, like it talks about in Hebrews 5, to test the spirits, like it says in 1 John 4, 1, just like Nehemiah is. We need to be on guard when people are exhorting us to look out for ourselves, who encourage us to prioritize our own safety and comfort when it's at the cost of compromising on what we know the Lord has called us to do. So beware of those who exhort you by appealing to your fears and your need to preserve yourself. Look, God is your ultimate caretaker. You can trust him to preserve your life and to lead you into life everlasting. You don't need to react out of anxious fear or believe that if you don't take care of yourself, then no one else will. Nehemiah's journey as he follows God and submits to God's calling on his life, it's filled with lots of challenges and hardships. Nehemiah is not a machine in these situations. Even though he's an exemplary leader and a model for what it looks like to follow God, he's just a man. He, he's not immune to these personal attacks. But in his faithful responses and his continued perseverance and trust in the Lord, God is able to use him for some incredible things. Look at these next verses. We, we reach a critical mile marker for the project in verse 15. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, 
All the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. They did it. They completed the wall, two and a half miles of it, 40 feet tall, eight feet thick, 10 iron gates. This took resources they didn't have. It took skills and expertise that they didn't possess. It took a vision that they couldn't fully see. With active enemies, they constantly tried to sow seeds of doubt, despair, who threatened their lives. And they did it in eight weeks. That's two months worth of work. In context, we've been trying to paint the outside of these windows for two years. Okay? I don't think we're done. There's like parts that aren't painted. The completion of this wall is downright miraculous. And I don't mean that as like hyperbole or exaggeration. It's literally a miracle that required the supernatural intervention of the God of the universe. How do I know this? In part because we've been studying the first five chapters of Nehemiah, which tell us in detail how God has ordained and sustained this project every single step of the way. But also because right here in this passage, people who don't even believe in the God of the Bible are acknowledging this truth. Look at verse 16. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. When God says he is going to do something, he does it. That's what it means for God to be faithful. Eight weeks ago, I shared the melodic line or the central idea. This should be on your screen throughout the book of Nehemiah. That God is rebuilding his people for himself and that nothing will stop him from accomplishing this. And though Israel may have had their doubts and though God's enemies were working their tails off to try to thwart his efforts, there was never any doubt on a cosmic level whether or not this wall was going to be built. What for us is suspense and uncertainty in what God promises to do. It's just a smirk on God's face and a simple matter of time before it's done. But notice, though, that the book isn't even half over. Yes, the wall is done, but in some ways the real work, the hard work, is just beginning. So look back at the graphic I showed earlier. We've got a whole second half of the book to go. With the completion of the wall, we move into the second half of the book, which is a shift from the work on the wall to God's law and worshiping him. Nehemiah doesn't even get to take a breath either. He doesn't get to ride off into the sunset quite yet. Let's read these final verses and wrap up our time together. Verse 17. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Arah. And his son Jehohanan had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also, they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. I mentioned at the beginning that there would be four different plots against Nehemiah to try to sabotage the building of the wall. The first was kidnapping. The second was to malign and slander him. The third was an attempt to intimidate and disqualify him. And here in these last verses, we see an attempt to undermine Nehemiah. What 17 through 19, these verses are describing, is an inside influence that the bad guys had within the kingdom of God's people. 
Tobiah, in particular, is mentioned here, and it's revealed that many of God's people, specifically specifically those in Judah, were bound by oaths to Tobiah. This uh, This is language of business and trade. They had economic ties. They had business agreements with Tobiah, which, as we see, bound the financial interests of the Jews with the bad guys. They were compromised. Undoubtedly, as a fruit of the core sin of greed, which caused all sorts of problems that we saw earlier in chapter 5. And so Tobiah and the bad guys had this free flow of information. Intelligence was coming in and going out of Israel. The very words of Nehemiah are being reported back to Tobiah. With letters being sent back and forth, those who were secretly aligned with him and his interests were within the walls. The enemy had influence within God's kingdom. It's one thing to have a clearly defined enemy, but for Nehemiah, perhaps the most difficult struggle in all of this was not knowing who was aligned with him and the work of the Lord and who was secretly working for Tobiah. He didn't know who he could count on. He didn't know who he could be vulnerable with, who he could confide in. He didn't know who he could trust because any of his brothers or sisters who lived within the walls of Jerusalem, who worked alongside him, could be a betrayer. What do you do when you have a situation like this? We live with a very similar struggle today in the church. There are a couple of levels to this. The first being the natural risk of living in community with others. What risk, you might ask? Well, let me tell you what I mean. Your level of friendship And the depth of your relationship that you have with another person is based almost completely on your level of mutual vulnerability with that person. So the more you share your thoughts and your feelings, the more you share about your past and your experiences, the more you share your heart with somebody, what brings you joy and excitement, what makes you terrified and and filled with despair, the more vulnerable you are mutually with someone, the closer you become as friends. If you didn't know that, that's how you make friends. And the richer that relationship becomes when you're able to be vulnerable. But... The more vulnerable you are, the more susceptible you become to hurt and heartbreak. And therein lies the risk. You don't know who inside these walls that you decide to be friends with, who you decide to be vulnerable with. You don't know if they will become a lifelong companion who's closer to you than than a blood-related brother or sister, or if they're going to inflict the most devastating damage that has ever been done to you. Or something along that spectrum. True Christian fellowship. Not just having acquaintances that you can get a coffee with and talk about the weather and your weekend plans. But deep spiritual friendship that's rooted and enabled in Christ is not without this dramatic risk. And so we know a similar struggle that Nehemiah had to an extent. The other level to this struggle is much more specific to this moment in the history of the American church and one that is even more difficult and painful to navigate than the inherent risk of Christian fellowship. And what I'm talking about is the flood of abuse which has been primarily targeted toward women in the church and which has primarily been perpetrated by men in the church. 
If you don't know what I'm talking about, you don't need to dig very deep on the internet to learn about it. And many of you are already very well aware. Men who confess Christ, who are leaders in churches both large and small, who have been ordained as pastors and shepherds of God's flock, who have taken the office designed to protect God's flock within the walls of his kingdom, have used their position, their power, and their authority to prey on the very sheep that they've been charged of laying down their lives for. There are, there are unfortunately dozens of public examples of this all across America and hundreds of instances of abuse which have been released in an independent investigation of the Southern Baptist Convention earlier this year. Look, never mind for a moment that abuse and misuse of power happens in the world at large all the time. That's more or less to be expected in a sinful and broken and fallen world. But it should be understood as utterly and absolutely inconceivable that it happens within the church. This is the place, as God's people, where men in particular are supposed to model and exemplify the care and the compassion and the protection and the safety of our Heavenly Father. Yet men have instead modeled the heart and behavior of Satan. It is demonic behavior which needs to be acknowledged, and it is not an overreaction. And so, the question is, how are women and people who are not in positions of authority and power, how are they able to trust or even function in a place where, like Nehemiah, our sisters don't know who their protectors are or who their destroyers are when both are saying that they're a brother? How are they expected to flourish when they don't know who is diligently working for the Lord or who is diligently working for the enemy of the Lord? Like Tobiah in Israel, Satan has some inside influence in the church. So what do we do? These are questions which must be faced. And I confess, it is difficult as a man, to be lumped in together with those whom I'm describing. But consider Nehemiah, who wasn't able to be drawn to defensiveness even while being accused of being abusive and manipulative because he knew it wasn't true about himself. And so with a clean conscience, knowing that the Lord knew his heart, he was able to endure it and care for and shepherd and fight for his flock. If you don't have this clean conscience in, in this area of your heart and in your life, may God have a severe mercy on you. And may the Holy Ghost convict you to the deepest center of your soul in this moment. And may you, by the grace of God, repent. Men, out of love for our sisters... Out of love for God and everything that he stands for, out of hatred for the sin which has corrupted so many other men, I urge you to resist prideful defensiveness here and to do what we're called to do, to be men, whether in positions of authority or not, men who lay down their lives for the good of all, who are willing to sacrifice however uncomfortable that might be, especially for our women who are hurting and who are extra vulnerable right now. This is our calling. And the Lord is asking you as men to lower your shoulder to this task. 
Living in Christian community today is one of the most emotionally risky things that any of us have been called to do. But it doesn't have to be that way. Nehemiah knew the risks. He knew that there were those in his community who would either be his best friends or his worst enemies. But he didn't hide down in a hole. He continued interacting with people. He, he didn't harden his heart to try to guard himself. He invited everyone to his table. You saw this in chapter 5. His brothers and his sisters within the walls, those who were outside the walls, his friends, his enemies, at his own expense, he broke bread with them. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. Jesus, as the true and better Nehemiah, who knew that the presence of his betrayer Judas was at that table with him, still broke the bread and extended his covenant grace to the one who moments later would deliver Jesus to be crucified. That's not a risk. That is radical grace. And for those who are scared to risk, those who are worried about being vulnerable, know first and foremost that our God was ultimately vulnerable for you. And not just with a risk of suffering, but with full knowledge and assurance that it was going to happen. There is no assurance that you won't get emotionally hurt as a Christian. I can't promise you that. But there is assurance that Jesus will never betray you. Jesus will never forsake you. Jesus will never abandon you. And even when everyone you know and love does, if that happens, Jesus will be with you. And he will be everything you need and more. And to the woman... I'm not sure a better passage could have been chosen for a moment such as this. Like how good and sovereign is our God? There are three things that Nehemiah does that I want to encourage you with very quickly and, and challenge you with. Nehemiah exercised sharp discernment, swift action, and great faith in God. Sharp discernment, swift action, and great faith in God. Each of the first three plots are thwarted because Nehemiah is shrewd as a serpent. I think this is different from being skeptical, which is having a constant presumption of negativity in any and all situations. I think it's different from merely being critical, which is just having a heightened sense of what could be better. But he is shrewd. He is able to correctly judge what is good from what is evil, what is of God and what is not. And then he was swift to act. He called out the lies. He refused to compromise. He stood his ground. He clung to what he knew was truth. And through it all, he exercised great faith in God. And he did not ultimately trust the people around him. He did not ultimately trust his own ability or his own insight. He did not even trust the progress that they were making on the wall. But over and over again, as you're reading through the first six chapters, you see that he prayed to God. He trusted that God would care for him and, and that God would sustain him and that God would see him through. But he also trusted God enough to then trust his brothers and his sisters. 
He didn't pull away. He didn't harden his heart. He didn't become paranoid that everyone out was out to get him. But he maintained unity with his people, serving his people and fighting for his people and breaking bread with his people. So women, may you be ever vigilant and discerning. May you be swift to action. And may we as men hear you, receive you, and support you in that action. And may the Lord grant you humility to continue breaking bread with your brothers as you trust the Lord who is your ultimate protector. There's work to be done in the church. And the enemy is afoot seeking to devour us from outside the walls, from within the walls, through others, through even ourselves. Let God have mercy. He does. And yes, there are practical things that might need to be worked on in the church, changes that might need to be made, but all that we can be responsible for is the portion of the wall that is right in front of us, which is this church right here and right now, Mercy House. And what is of utmost importance for us to make any progress in holiness needs to begin in our own hearts. So let's take the steps this morning to be vulnerable with our Savior, Jesus, and then to be vulnerable with our brothers and with our sisters here in the house of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come before you humbly, God. You are so gracious and good to us. You are sovereign and in control of all the things in our lives. Nothing happens without your approval. Lord, your promises are true. Your word is sure. God, we confess that there often seems and feels like many plots against us on any given day. Lord, we confess that it is hard to be vulnerable. God, we thank you that you were ultimately vulnerable for us. That you were the one to go out on a limb, even though you knew that limb was going to break. Father, I thank you that you care for our hearts and our souls. And Lord, I pray for us as a church. Lord, here at Mercy House, that you would help us model and exemplify who you are, God. That you would allow us to live out the gospel, gracious love for one another, and sacrificial care for one another, God. Lord, we're just so thankful for you and for what you've done here at Mercy House. And we pray, Lord, that you would continue to do that work, God, and that God, you would, um, yeah, sustain all things here, that you'll continue to build your church. God, we love you. Thank you that you are the great shepherd. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.